Each and every day, Father God, we want to lean upon you. We want to rest in you. Feel your love and experience your grace each and every day. So, Father, speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 18, let's start by reading the first few verses together as we continue this process of the land being divided up by Joshua given to the different tribes. So chapter 18, starting in verse 1, says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been appointed. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So right there, we start to see that there are seven tribes left that need to be given their land, given their possession. And so there's a couple of things we pull out just from these first few verses that I think was really going to speak to us this morning. Number one, the tabernacle had been moved to Shiloh. Remember, we talked about it was in Gibeon. It's going to be in a lot of different places. But here now they decide to move it to a town called Shiloh. And Shiloh becomes very important because there is a passage in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that has been used to, as a prophetic passage that speaks to Shiloh that the, the scepter is not going to be removed from this land until he comes and all bow before him, obviously speaking to Jesus. But it mentions in the, in the New American Standard Version, Shiloh specifically in that verse. And so the tabernacle, God moves his presence to Shiloh. Now, why is that important? It's important because of where Shiloh resides in the land is pretty much directly right in the heart of the promised land. Why is that important? God is at the center of everything that he is doing for his people. That no matter where the people are, where they're settled, whether it's in the north or the south or the east side of the river or the west side of the river, they have access to come into the presence of God. And that's what's important. And if we just stop there for a minute, that speaks to the church today. That's why there are, at least within the denomination that we're a part of, 46,000 churches spread across the United States. That's just one denomination. Now you take into consideration all Bible-believing churches spread out throughout the United States or in this city. We're looking at at least 30 churches spread out throughout the city of Lake Elsinore. Why is that important? Because God's word needs to be close to people. People need to have an opportunity to step out their door and go and get into the presence of God so they don't have to travel far. And we're going we're to mention that a little bit later this morning. But according to Richard Hess, he said, Christians are also called upon to see the worship of God as central to their lives. As with the gatherings at the Shiloh Sanctuary, so regular meetings for worship are a chief means to provide unity and common encouragement for faithful living. So I want you to think about and remember all these people had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, traveling from Egypt, God bringing them to the promised land. They've been together pretty much. And now once they're settled in the land, they're divided up by their tribes and they're going to go and settle permanently where God has given them the land. But yet they still have that opportunity together as tribes to come together 
to worship God and be together in his presence. So if we if we take that and break that down, that our tribes here, I see a tribe back there. I see a tribe right here, a tribe represented here and here and back there, way in the back corner over there. I see a tribe here and here. But what do we do? All these various tribes, what do we do? We come together at a centralized location and worship together in unity, giving praise to God because of what he's done for us collectively. And that's the beautiful thing about what's going on here that we can really pull from it. So the importance of the local church to gather with your tribe. Refuge City is a tribe, and we could even take that further, and, and we've got the tribe of, of Lamb's Fellowship up the road. We've got the tribe of Lake Hills, the tribe of The Rock, the tribe of uh, all these other churches in and around the city that can gather together as well. We're going to maybe even see a little bit of that on Friday night at the Faith and Family Night when you see all these larger tribes now come together and worship the Lord and fellowship with one another. It's a very cool thing. But we have to take advantage of that. And I know nowadays there is and has been settled into a lot of people's hearts this hesitancy to gather. Because of the fear of everything that's going on in society, there, was, there is still some hesitancy after a year and a half of coming together and gathering with your tribe to worship the Lord. I'm not coming down on anybody. I just want God's word to speak to whoever needs to hear it. But there is value and importance in coming together. And I think you here realize that. That's why you're here. And those tuning in online, you are tuning in online because you can be with us in some sense. And, but there is so much importance of continuing to come together to rejoice and remember. Remember talks of memorials and monuments? This is one of those opportunities to remember all that God has done for us. Let me remind us of a very famous, so to speak, Psalm 100. The entire chapter is five verses. What does it say? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him bless his name for the lord is good his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations you hear the emphasis why we come together because of everything that he has done for us and we can come together and worship together all for the glory of god let's go back to verse 3 in chapter 18 it said joshua speaking to the people these other these remaining seven tribes he says what are you waiting for? What have you been doing? His specific words are, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land? Judah's already gone in. Manasseh's, half of Manasseh's already gone in. Ephraim's got their land. What are the rest of you doing? What's going on? Why are you waiting? Why the hesitation? Why forsake what God has clearly given to you? What have we just fought for seven years for? Why are you hanging out over here on the east side? Come take the land that God has promised to you. But something that kind of came up in this conversation with these seven tribes, something that became very clear to me, something that we here can identify with as well. So I want you to physically raise your hand if you love 
change. I'll wait. Not a single hand. Amazing. We don't like change. It's not pleasant. So I want you to think about that in regards to what they've been doing. How have they been living for at least 40 years? They've been wandering. They've been in the wilderness. They've been in the unknown with so much uncertainty before them. Do any of us think we would have not been hesitant as well? Going into a land that initially was, a, there was a lot of fear there, wasn't there? Because of what the spies and the report that came back, there's all these people, but yet God has still gone before them and cleared them out. But yet there's still hesitancy to go in and take what God has given them. They've been wandering, essentially homeless, for 40 years, at least. Even some of these people born along the way, so all they know, their comfort, their life, what they've been used to is wilderness. There's been no sense of permanency. There's been no opportunity to let the roots grow. So I would say in, in the human mindset, there was a lot of fear. And I think we can even look at the history what land did they have prior to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? Was it their own? No. They were in a land that belonged to somebody else. They were working hard. They were working as slaves. So even then, even though they had roots, it was a laborious lifestyle. So you can imagine how they feel. And I'm sure you've been there as well. That was comfort to them, a life of hundreds of years of slavery to 40 years of wandering. They found comfort in that lifestyle. In fact, let me remind you of a few occurrences when they spoke to that. If you go back to Exodus chapter 16, in verse 3, when they were first, uh, they'd crossed the Red Sea, they'd given praise to God, and they continue to move forward in the wilderness, and they get to a point where their, their stomachs are starting to grumble a little bit. They're getting hungry. Where are we going to find food? What are we going to eat? And so they come to Moses and Aaron and say, what have you done? We're starving. We're hungry. And in uh, Exodus 16, verse 3, they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So the moment they're met with hunger, a trial, there's complaint, and they immediately look to a situation where they felt they were a little more comfortable. Basically what they said is we would rather have died in Egypt than be in the wilderness and be hungry. What are you going to do for us? And so the Lord provides manna. He provides quail, doesn't he? As much as they wanted. And, and one more chapter later, they get a little thirsty now too. I mean, they're wandering in the wilderness. What is God going to do? Even though he just provided everything they could possibly want in regards to food for them, they still complain. And they once again come to Moses and say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they're hungry. And they complain. I know nobody in here has done that. They get thirsty and they complain. Nobody here has done that. <laughs> yeah, 
Can you identify with the Israelites a little bit? How about now, just before they crossed over into the promised land? Was there another moment of fear and trepidation based on who they were about to face? When the spies came back and gave the report of the land, it's a beautiful land, it's flowing with milk and honey, but yet the people there are very large. And so the people once again come to Moses and say in Numbers 14, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So after 40 years and after sign, after sign, after provision, after provision, they're still asking to go back to Egypt, even almost uh, setting up a, a coup and saying, let's find leadership that'll take us back to Egypt. They were on the cusp of a promise from God, and they were about to quit. Faced with hunger, they wanted to quit. Faced with thirst, they wanted to quit. Faced with war or the uncertainty of what lied on the other side, they wanted to quit and go back to what was comfortable. Who's been there? Don't raise your hand. I know. 100% of you have been there. But that's kind of what we're talking about. There is uncertainty when it comes to change. And so a sense of permanency maybe caused a little bit more fear. Is that what keeps us from continuing to move forward? Fear? Anxiety? Uncertainty of what lies ahead? When you don't know the circumstances before you, you're hesitant to put one foot in front of the other, aren't you? We all are. Allowing other issues beyond your control to distract you from moving forward in what God wants you to do. We've been there. But Jesus provides us a tremendous amount of comfort. When he says in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. We've read that how many times since we've been a church? Do not be anxious about your life. Interestingly enough, Jesus would say about what you will eat or about what you will drink. Just like the Israelites had done, we're hungry. Let's go back to Egypt. We're thirsty. Let's go back to Egypt. Jesus says, no, do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink. He says, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of, excuse me, hour to his span of life? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And then the famous passage of Scripture we use a lot in everything. Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, your food, your, your thirst, your clothing, your, your needs, your wants, whatever it is that God wants to give you will be added unto you. But seek God first. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Anybody have any fear about what's going on in the world today? You're looking at Afghanistan, aren't you? We're seeing our southern border. We're seeing a tremendous amount of floods occurring in Tennessee. I just read this morning, 40 people have died. We're seeing there's a, uh, uh, what do you call them things? A hurricane on the east coast that's about to slam the east coast and cause more problems. We're uncertain still about this 
COVID virus or this Delta variant or what's going to happen in our schools and the, the mandates and the requirements and everything coming upon us and we get this fear and anxiety about what's going to happen, we forget about how we're supposed to live for the Lord and trust in Him now, today. And I know it's easy to do. I know it's so easy to do. I do it myself all too often. But we got to go back to God's word. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, what do we read? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Heavy laden with what? Fear, anxiety, uncertainty. All this stuff that's going on in the world with politics and economics and viruses and you name it. Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So with a lot of those powerful words, the seven tribes from Joshua say, all right, let's take what's ours. And chapter 18 and, and some of chapter 19 is divvying up that land, just like we talked about. So let's look at chapter 19 uh, in very, very short, very quickly, is simply the tribes continue to receive their inheritance, and specifically Joshua receives his inheritance. Remember, excuse me, remember when Caleb was set apart? And Caleb was set apart to receive his inheritance because God told Moses that both Caleb and Joshua would receive their own personal inheritance for their courage and their faithfulness as men who were following after God. Remember the words about Caleb? Because he wholly followed the Lord. And so Joshua here in chapter 19 receives his inheritance. And then in verse 51 of chapter 19, what do we read? So they finished dividing the land. They crossed over. They fought seven years of wars and battles. The Lord giving all the ites into their hands. And now they've taken possession. They've claimed their boundaries and their borders. And they finished dividing the land. But there's still a few things to do. And that's what leads us to chapter 20. A very short chapter. I want to say 10 or 11 verses. But it speaks to something that is very important where we're going to spend some time right now. That part of God's law, God's command to Moses, moving his people towards the promised land, he says there's something you're going to need to do when you enter the promised land and I give you your inheritance. Is to set up what are called cities of refuge. Now, this chapter speaks volumes to me personally because I'm grateful for the Lord for giving us the name of the church that he did. We are Refuge City Church. So this is why I want to spend a little bit of time in chapter 20 and really dive into what these cities of refuge are all about and really how that can apply to us today. So read with me. We're just going to read again the first three verses of chapter 20. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, 
appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound too encouraging right now, but let's, we'll break this down and make this very clear. What are we talking about? What are these cities all about? Number one, there are six of them. Six cities of refuge designated as such throughout the promised land. There were three that were going to be set up on the east side of the Jordan and three set up on the west side of the Jordan. Why is that important? Because where they are established in the land, again, like Shiloh, like gathering together, no matter where you're at in the north, south, east, or west, you have access to one of these cities of refuge. But they were set up for a purpose. That those who commit unintentional murder, <laughs> those who commit unintentional murder, could run to one of these cities and take refuge, be protected, be cared for. Now, why that specifically? Because within God's law, and I, you can read it if you want to, I'm not going to go through all of it this morning, but pretty much the entire chapter of Numbers 35, if you want to make a note of that, Numbers chapter 35, designates a lot more specifics to these cities of refuge and why they're set up in the way that they are. But again, for those who commit unintentional murder, so what are we talking about? Somebody makes a mistake, a very costly mistake. But what is being designated here is the difference in God's law between making an unintentional mistake versus a premeditated sin from the heart. That's the difference here that's being set up. But regardless, God's justice is evaluated from a matter of sin from the heart, right? Not by mistakes. So this is something we want to make very clear. There are mistakes that we will make. We will commit sin, but sometimes we just make mistakes. We mess up. But it's not because we had thought about that sin, we had thought about that mistake, we looked at all the possible scenarios about how it would work out or who we want to harm or whatever else. No, it was just a mistake. But unfortunately, there are some mistakes that happen that are extremely costly to the point of taking somebody's life. But God in His grace and His mercy provides justice in His law to provide for these misunderstandings and these mistakes. So condemnation and punishment is given to those whose hearts are hardened and reject God's law and justice. So here's what would happen. Say you're working in your city. And let's just use the scenario that you're building up the wall or a house and, and as you're building, a piece of stone or brick falls from the top of your house and lands on somebody and kills them. Here's what opportunity you have. You can go to one of these cities of refuge and you stand outside the gates and call for the elders of the city to come along with some Levites, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We, we spoke to the Levites before, right? Helpers in the temple. And you tell them what happened. And by God's law, they are to accept you into the city 
and provide for you and care for you until you stand before the congregation, tell your story, plead your case, and determine whether or not you are innocent or guilty. Sound familiar? <laughs> kind of like our justice system today. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. But again, so let's look at the significance of this. What is the significance of these cities of refuge? Well, Psalm 46 verse 1 tells us plainly, God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. A passage of scripture we need to really grab onto. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And if you jump to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, it reads this. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Multiple times in Scripture, God is called our refuge. And early on, it kind of used that scenario of a, an old, maybe medieval type fortress or castle, right? High walls, thick walls, Maybe even a, a moat around or something like that. And the only way to get in and out was the main gate. That bridge would come down, let people in, and it would go up in case of attack or for whatever other reason. All supplies and people would come into that fortress, that city, and, and be protected and be cared for and be provided for. And that's kind of the scenario, situation, what we have here. But I found this by a pastor, and I, I thought it was pretty interesting. And so I'm going to paraphrase him, and then I added a lot of Scripture to this. So I'm going to go through a lot of Scripture right now. Don't feel like you've got to write it all down. I just really want you to listen in how these cities of refuge apply to our life now and who Christ is to us. So let's take a look. I'm going to kind of break down a little bit more of what these cities of refuge were and the law behind them. Number one, there were six of them. Six cities are established so that they could be close by and have easy access to any of the people wherever they are. We talked about that, right? North to south, east to west, spread out very evenly. How does this apply to Jesus? Well, we go to Acts chapter 17. And in verse 27, it says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So that's kind of a, a beautiful picture of the representation of these cities where if we make mistakes, if we sin, if we mess up, we could run to. But we know it's not far away. That is Christ to us. If we would just turn around, open our eyes, Christ is near. He's very close by. Aspect number two of these cities of refuge, they are available to anyone. In fact, Numbers 35 is very clear about that. In fact, in verse 15, it said, For the people of Israel 
and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them. So anyone and everyone in their mistake could go to one of these cities of refuge for help. I'm going to quote a very obscure passage of scripture that speaks to this. It's found in this book called John chapter 3 verse 16. I think you might know the verse. For God so loved the world. That what? Say it, church. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, anyone, everyone would believe in him, Jesus is available to everybody. Those that know him, the stranger, the sojourner, he's open to all. Aspect number three of the city of refuge is that the ultimate purpose of the city was what? Justice and salvation. Justice and salvation. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, what do we read about Jesus? Him speaking, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By believing you may have life in his name because he took that penalty that you deserve and set you free and took it upon himself so you could be free aspect number four of a city of refuge the only option for salvation it is the only option you have when you make this kind of mistake you run to the city it's your only choice if you decide not to go to a city of refuge you are at the mercy of the law and at the mercy of what's called the avenger of blood, an individual who is set apart to go and hunt you down and bring you to justice and more than likely kill you because you killed somebody else. So your only option is to run to this city for salvation. What are we told in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The greatest individual, our Savior, Jesus Christ, shed his blood, took that for you so that we could be set free. That's what John 14, 6 says, the only option for salvation, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have to run to our refuge, run to our fortress, run to our Savior, run to our God, because in and of ourselves, we're not good enough. In and of ourselves, outside of Christ, we cannot be saved. There is no freedom, there is no justice, there is no life outside of christ we need to go to him but he's not that far off next aspect of the city of refuge is that inside equals life outside equals death we essentially kind of just said that but in romans chapter 6 verse 23 it says for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is life Outside the walls of Jesus Christ, there is death. Because how many of us can be obedient to the law in and of ourselves, follow every single rule and law in the books, and never, ever make a mistake? 
You have to be perfect and follow every law, and then you can have life and salvation. None of us are good enough. None of us. But Christ came and said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But we have to run to him for that salvation. And the last aspect of the city of refuge is that ultimate freedom comes with the death of the high priest at the time. So if an individual runs to one of these cities because he made a mistake and killed somebody, he goes to the city, he asks for help, he is given that help and provided that help, and even if the avenger of blood comes to that city after him, that person is protected. And if they are found innocent of their mistakes, they stay in the city of refuge until the individual in that city serving as the high priest passes away. So it takes the death of the high priest for you to then go and return home. Easily connected to our Savior Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6, we just read it, 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. So when Christ shed his blood and sacrificed his life and died on that cross, we have forgiveness of our sins and we're set free to wait the anticipation of going home. But it takes the death of Christ in order for us to receive that gift. So there is one major difference of these cities of refuge and, and Jesus in this correlation we're making. Here's the main difference. The cities of refuge were set aside for those that were presumably innocent, who just simply made a mistake. The difference is there is not a single individual presumed innocent in life that doesn't need to run to Jesus Christ for salvation. Psalm 14, verse 3 says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I know that's not very encouraging to us, but not a single individual in this room is good. I'm sorry, but we're not. We need Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, For while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. So while we were guilty, while we were messed up, while we make mistakes, while we're dead in our sin, Christ died for us to shed his blood to forgive us. So these cities were set aside for the presumed innocent. Christ came for all those that are not good, guilty, and dead to give them and provide them life in his name. So that's why I love that we are Refuge City Church. Is that not what we are to be? It is a place for us to run to when we need that help, when we need Jesus Christ, when we need to be reminded of who we are, when we need to be cared for, when we need to be provided for, we come to 
refuge city. But refuge city is a place for everyone, anyone, no matter where they're at in life, they can come here and should receive that same welcome and hope and provision because here they're going to get the word of God and here they can have the opportunity for life in Christ. That's who I want us and desire us to be more than me. More, it really is the Lord God who desires that's who we are to the community around us. Regardless if our name is Refuge City or whatever it might be, my hope and prayer is that any church in this city that holds fast to the Word of God is that place for people to come to. That's why we try hard to partner with other churches and organizations in this city. Because we alone here are not going to reach 62,000 plus people. We're not going to do it. And we don't have to take that responsibility on. We just have to be ready and available to do what we can for those that need that hope and that provision. Let's close this up. Joshua chapter 21, the Levites' inheritance. We spoke to this a little while ago and in previous uh, passages, but the Levites now, a tribe that was set aside and set apart from the other 12. God received them unto himself as those that would work in the tabernacle, help in the temple. Remember, to set it up and tear it down, to carry it and to protect it, right? So these Levites now receive their inheritance in chapter 21. Verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And the rest of the chapter is dedicated to dividing up those lands. But here's something, I, it may not be really easy to see, but there's a map I want to show you that kind of where we started and, and kind of what we continue to talk about. You can put that up there. I, like I said, I know it's really hard to see. I don't expect you to read it. But these are all the Levitical towns that have been given over to the Levites. Remember, there are people set aside from the Lord, but they are spread out throughout all the different tribes and lands throughout the promised land. Why do you think that is? Because I want, I want to take you back. What did it say in verse 3? So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites, gave back to God, the following cities and pasture lands. Remember in the beginning how we define Jericho? That all its people and all its possessions were what? Dedicated and devoted to destruction to be given back to the Lord. So here we see now another aspect of that. Within each land, divided up an allotment of land given to the tribes, they are to give back to the Lord, to these Levites, a portion of their land for the glory and service of God. It's an offering. 
but you can see throughout the land from the north to the south, from the east to the west. These Levitical towns are spread out throughout the land. Now, it's, it's probably hard for you to see, but the six cities of refuge are on there as well. I can share this with you if you would like to take a quick look, but we can do that another time. But there's something particular about this that I think rings very true for us today. We opened with it, and we're going to close with it. Does this sound like the church? Does it sound like the church? Particular pockets throughout the land that are given back to the Lord. Places that the people can go to so they are not far from what? Bringing their offering to the Lord. They're not far from hearing from the Word of God. They're not far from being reminded of the law of God by their priests and their, their Levites and the workers in the, in the synagogues and the temples that would eventually be set up throughout all these towns. They're not far from receiving provision. Sounds very similar to our church today. The towns represent the people giving a portion of their land back to the Lord. And that's exactly what we do. We give back to God for what He has first given to us. All for the purpose of love, support, and provision for those in need and to ensure the Word of God is proclaimed all throughout the land, yet within close proximity. So that's our desire and our heart for what we do here. Whether we're here, whether we're in the school, or wherever the Lord is going to have us. <laughs> Right now, we just continue to trust in Him that He is going to provide us that place. But I tell you what, and this will come at another time, but I feel the Lord has given me a vision for what we may look like in the future. And I want to share that with you someday. Because for whatever reason, I can't get it off of my mind. I can't get, it, I can't get away from it, this vision of what I feel He may have for us. And I'm continuing to pray on it. Because right now we're dependent upon this beautiful place here, the links at Summerlee, to provide us a, a wonderful location. We may be dependent upon the school system to open up their doors to us, which may happen or may not happen. We don't know, given the uncertainty of the days before us. But I feel very certain in the near future, whatever near may look like, however long that may be, it's up to the Lord that he is going to provide us a place of our own. A place where the gates can be wide open. People can come. People can find refuge. Find hope and find provision. Find a way to fulfill their hunger. A way to fulfill their thirst. To hear from the Word of God. And maybe even have their lives radically changed by the hope that only He can provide. At the end of chapter 21, I want to read the, the closing few verses, starting in verse 43. It says, and I want, I'm going to emphasize some words, and I think you'll get the point. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord 
had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God did everything. God provided everything. God destroyed walls. He gave them into their hands. He provided them land, provided them food, provided them every possible thing they would need, and then some. But the beautiful thing we read in here is that he gave them rest because he was their rest. And so that's where we close out today. The inheritance, the blessings, the cities of refuge. It all should sound very familiar to us in why we're doing what we're doing today. And if I take us to the New Testament to close our time out together, in Acts chapter 2, we read about this process of this being established in the very beginning and, and what God would bring to the establishment of the church in the New Testament under the new covenant of Jesus Christ and even to where we're at today. Acts chapter 22, verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any, anyone, everyone, no matter where they were from, had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's our purpose. And we're going to keep it our purpose, keep it our focus, as long as we put our trust in the Lord for all that He wants to give us. And there may be some hesitation, there may be some fear of the unknown, the uncertainty of what's going to happen, but when we put our hope in Jesus Christ, He has so much for us. We just may need somebody to say, what are you waiting for? Go in, take what God has given you. It's theirs. Take it. Own it. Protect it. But then provide. Be that hope for other people.